today I wanted to talk about PO versus IV antibiotics for two of the complicated infections we see, osteomyelitis and endocarditis, and with a focus on what's the evidence and why do we do what we do. Um, both of these are complicated infections that we see pretty frequently. Um, they're sort of heterogeneous groups of infections with different flavors to both osteo and endocarditis, depending on the you know, host, the organism, other features of the infection. Um, and I think it's something that, especially as you move towards the end of your training, it's really helpful to think about, you start to sort of learn how we do things. And it's helpful to also think about what things do we do because of, you know, expert opinion, experience, and what things do we have evidence for? And I think that really helps as you go forward and keeping up with the evidence on your own once you're out in practice um, to sort of know what the evidence foundation is. Um, and the other point is, why do I care about this? Why do we care? Um, because IV antibiotics are generally pretty effective, but you know they come with a lot of downsides. And I think we're all aware of these and we all see these. Um, but to think through them, there's risks associated with having a long-term IV catheter in you. Um, there's a wide range of reported complications, especially depending on how you define complications. But there's problems with catheters. They dislocate, they don't work, they have to get replaced. There's local infections, there's clabsies, there's DVTs, and central venous stenosis are all real concerns. There's also the financial cost of IV therapy. It does tend to be more expensive than oral, generally speaking, and there's more to it than just the medications. And I think, you know, often as the ones prescribing medications, that's what we focus on, but you also need a lot more to it. You need the flushes, all the supplies to take care of the lines. There's procedures to place and replace and manipulate lines. There's the nursing support that goes into it. Um, and there are other costs, which often is involved to long hospital stays um, or long rehab stays. And there's also cost to the patient and family. If, if when you're seeing patients, you talk to patients who have been on long-term IVs before, um, they often have strong opinions about the experience, them and or their family members who have helped sort of been through that journey with them. It can take a lot of time, especially as medications are more than once a day or some that take hours to infuse. Um, there's also sometimes patients will tell you about how they lose sleep, especially if you get on a medication that's three times a day. I met someone once who was on a four times a day medication and through an IV, and that was just awful. Um, and there's a lot of other sort of non-financial costs, too. The, they may not be able to work while they have the IV in their arm, depending on what they do. They might not be able to travel. It can be pretty limiting to lifestyles for, you know, the weeks that they're on therapy. Um, so I'll start by talking about osteomyelitis. I broke it up so that I talk about osteomyelitis and then endocarditis. Um, and, you know, I think the overall approach to osteomyelitis there's a lot of variation in the details, but the overall approach um, is, you know, ideally you often debride, remove any infected tissue or material. You need to give a prolonged course of antibiotics, usually four to six weeks. Um, you have to use antibiotics with good bone penetration. Um, and that there's about a 60 to 90% cure rate um, for chronic osteomyelitis using this approach. And so history of osteomyelitis treatment. So I thought it would be helpful to start by talking about the history of how we got to where, what we do now. And I found this great review article. I found one for osteo, one for endocarditis that are very recent papers. And 
I found them really helpful talking through the evidence and the background. Um, so I'm gonna, gonna <laughs> subject you guys to a short history lesson here. But regarding osteomyelitis, the authors of this paper sort of went through all the evidence and we'll go through some of these papers as well. And what they conclude is that they really didn't find much data to actually support these dictums that we do, the necessity of parenteral therapy, the universal necessity of at least three, four to six weeks, or how critical it is to select antibiotics with superior bone penetration. That doesn't mean that these aren't important things, but they found that there really isn't a lot of evidence behind this. And so a brief timeline. I'm starting in the 1940s when we had antibiotics. There's whole timelines of his osteo before that, but we'll, I'll spare you those. Um, and the 1940s, 1950s is where you really start seeing papers and literature about the treatment of osteo with antibiotics because penicillin came around. And um, most of what, most of the older papers are in kids um, and that kids could really be successfully treated with pretty short courses of penicillin, um, including for Staph aureus back in the day. Um, as you move into the 60s and 70s, you had increasing penicillin resistance. You had oral tetracyclines and cephalosporins. Um, and a lot of these oral treatments were, again, still pretty successful in children with different lengths of treatment durations. And 1970, this is, there was a paper that came out in New England Journal that sort of described what is still our overall approach to osteomyelitis. Um, and it, they said that osteomyelitis is rarely controlled without the combination of careful, complete surgical debridement and prolonged parenteral antibiotic therapy at high dosage. And to some degree, it was a little bit unclear where some of their data came from in this paper or their recommendations because they sort of ignored all those prior papers showing that oral antibiotics could be successful at times. Um, this was also a time when the main antibiotic parenteral antibiotic of choice was penicillin, and there were a lot of concerns about the bioavailability of oral penicillin. Um, and then as you move into the 80s and 90s, the big change in these days was fluoroquinolones, um, with or without rifampin in many studies. Um, and then it was really in the 2000s where you start to get a much broader range of studies looking at oral antibiotics with a wider range of oral options. Um, this is when we started to see trimethoprim sulfa, clinda, amoxclav, cephalosporins, flagyl, linazolid, were all shown to be successful in mostly observational studies. Um, there were also some RCTs, randomized controlled trials over this time, though they're generally smaller numbers. And in 2019, I would say that's when we've had our, we've had our paper with the best evidence with the OVIVA trial. And we'll get into that one a little more lately. Um, so as you can see over time, there's been an addition of antibiotic options in our arsenal and PO alternatives. And there's been a lot of papers over the years showing success with oral agents, though many observational, many limited in terms of the data, the size of the population, who was chosen. Um, if you want to look at randomized control trials for osteomyelitis, um, there's a ID doc out, I think he's at UCSD, Brad Spellberg, and he has a website where he sort of um, combines all the RCTs for oral antibiotics. He also does it for shorter durations versus longer durations of therapy. Um, but I thought this table was helpful 
to go back and see that there have been, over time, eight RCTs for oral versus IV antibiotics for osteomyelitis. If you look, the first seven of them are really small. They're all, you know, double-digit number of patients until you get down to the last one. Um, and the column in the middle gives you the the regimen, um, a lot of fluoroquinolones, other than, you know, the second to last one was Bactrim um, with rifampin. Um, but really, a lot of fluoroquinolones are the baseline of a lot of these trials. Um, and overall success is you know, the same in the two groups. Um, the last trial, the big one with over a thousand patients is Oviva, uh, the New England Journal paper from 2019. Um, and so I thought we could talk about that one a little more. And so Oviva was, you guys have probably talked about this in prior lectures, so I'm not gonna do a full journal club on it, but um, to refresh your memory, it's a multi-center randomized open label. and they were pretty inclusive of who they included. They were aiming to assess non-inferiority of oral antibiotics with IV in bone joint infections. So they included a sort of mixed group of patients, patients with hardware, without, who had surgery or debridement, who didn't, who had one stage revisions if they had hardware, who had it taken out. And so this was a, you know, it was a very practical approach. It includes a lot of the patients we see in practice, I would say, um, but not one specific group in the end. And they randomized participants to IV versus PO antibiotics for six weeks. Um, and they used a broad range of PO. There was a lot of um, investigator or ID specialist discretion in which antibiotics were prescribed. Um, and they followed patients for one year with the primary outcome being treatment failure. And just to look at when they looked at who, how much IV and PO did the groups get, those randomized to IV, you can see the in this chart, the solid line shows the IV group. And, you know, about 90% of them at a peak received IV antibiotics, and then some couldn't tolerate IV, didn't have IV access, and so those are the ones who were not getting IV in this group. Um, and most patients, you can see a big drop-off at 42 days, which is six weeks of therapy. Um, and the oral group, the vast majority got oral got oral rather than IV treatment, so low rates of IV treatment. You can see that for the first seven days, a lot of patients stayed on IV until somewhere in that period where they sort of transitioned to PO once, based on their clinician's judgment, once they knew what they were treating. Um, and then I just thought this second chart was interesting as well. I think I hear someone typing on there. I'm not sure if someone's not muted. Um, and in this chart, you can see this just shows people receiving any sort of antibiotics, and you can see the IV and oral groups track together. But the more interesting part is that vertical line at 42 days shows you the six-week mark, um, which is sort of our standard treatment duration for osteo. Um, and you can see that even further out from that, even at like 100 days, a large chunk of the people were still receiving antibiotics. So I think that's just something interesting in this, that a lot of patients received more, they had to receive ideally at least four to six weeks, but a lot of them received a lot more of antibiotics. Um, and for the primary outcomes of, um, this shows different ways to analyze the data intention to treat or pro, per protocol. And basically for all of them, there was um, oral treatment was not inferior to IV. And even in the top one is their intention to treat our standard population. 
The bottom one is a worst case sensitivity analysis where they basically assumed everyone who they lost to follow up, which was a really small number, had failed oral therapy and succeeded on IV. So that was like the worst possible outcomes, including, and still it was not inferior. Um, and adverse events, I just wanted to highlight that even that both groups had just over a quarter patient have serious adverse events. Um, and they were different rates. They were higher rates of antibiotic-related adverse events in the IV group. And if you go down to the, to the bottom section, the secondary endpoints, obviously IV catheter complications were more common in the IV group, as you would expect. Um, and also early discontinuation was more common in the IV group. But that's not to say that the oral group didn't have complications. So I think that's just something to keep in mind when we consider switching to PO antibiotics. Um, and so I just wanted to sort of highlight some of this data and give some key takeaways that based on the evidence we have, both through a few decades of observational trials and then more recently some RCTs, most largely the OVIVA trial, is that oral therapy is not inferior to parenteral therapy based on the evidence we have. Um, oral therapy still has adverse events. You need to monitor patients. You can't just give them six weeks of PO Bactrim high dose and send them out the door. Um, but, you know, oral therapy with a variety of oral agents has been shown to be effective as well. The optimal duration for therapy base is unclear, and I didn't go into duration so much here. I more wanted to talk about whether whether PO is an option or not. Um, and I think, you know, further duration is needed and or further research is needed for the duration question. And I think, like I mentioned, osteomyelitis encompasses a really varied group of patients and um, whether they have hardware or not, how much, whether debridement is performed at all and whether it's complete debridement or close to it, as close to it you can get, what the pathogen is and location. There's um, there are some studies suggesting maybe longer duration is needed in vertebral osteo. Um, and there are some recent papers suggesting maybe for some diabetic foot infections, you can get away with shorter therapy. But I think all of that's still up in the air in an area of further research. And, you know, one more thing to highlight is that there's more to successful management than antibiotics. And the, the first slide I put up, it, you know, quoted a 60 to 90% cure rate with our standard approach to osteomyelitis, which really is a fair amount of patients failing for something where they're maybe having surgery and they're maybe having, you know, weeks of IV antibiotics that they're giving themselves at home or a family member. Um, it's not a great success rate, and that's because it's not straightforward. There's a lot more to it, especially depending on the host. Like a lot of the patients we see in the hospital with diabetic foot osteo, you know, questions about vascular supply, their diabetic control, their wound care, it always comes up. Patients we see with other types of osteomyelitis, especially patients who inject drugs, are they getting treatment for their substance use disorder so that they are able, set up to be, you know, successful and adherent to whatever therapy we prescribe, whether IV or PO. Um, and so, you know, I'm not trying to say PO antibiotics are for everyone, but I think they can be a real consideration in the right patients. And um, if you have a patient where it's a less complicated case, you know what the organism is, and you have an oral option that the patient, you know, is not allergic to and can tolerate, I think there's a lot of reason to think, to feel you can be successful with that strategy. Um, and so we'll talk a little more at the end of the whole lecture about um, how to identify which patients may be eligible. Um, this is sort of the 
the summary of the osteomyelitis section. Does anyone have questions on that before I move on to endocarditis? And then we'll talk a little more about endocarditis. Um, I'd say I feel like the burden of it or the amount of evidence for endocarditis and PO antibiotics is a little less than that for osteomyelitis. Um, but let's go through some of it. Um, like I mentioned, I Part of the reason I decided to give this lecture was I happened upon these two review papers, one for osteo and one for endocarditis, that I really found very helpful to me and how I think through it. Um, and so they helped shape this talk, and I wanted to make sure I highlighted them here to give them credit. Um, and this paper is from last year, and it's a it's a evaluation of a paradigm shift from IV to oral step-down therapy for the treatment of infective endocarditis. And I think one key word in the title here is step-down. When we talk about osteomyelitis, we also we it's often talking about oral for basically the entire course once the patient has their surgery and debridement and they're stable and you know what organism it is. So within a few days, you can switch over to appropriate oral in most of those studies. In endocarditis, we're often talking about step down where you usually are giving IV for a little bit longer period of time um, until you're really sure the patient's doing okay before you're switching over. And I'll mention a little bit about the different durations that are used in different studies. Um, and this paper sort of had a helpful overall framework to why PO step-down therapy can be appropriate for IE or could theoretically. Um, their first point was a little bit sarcastic, but they basically said bacteria don't know if the antibiotics are giving PO or IV. They just know what concentrations reach the bacteria. I'm saying this like bacteria think, which anyway. Um, and that their second point was that, you know, a lot of our older thoughts that IV was necessary may have been related to the fact that some of our older PO antibiotics may not have reached the concentrations that are needed to kill bacteria, but modern ones do reach better blood level concentrations. Um, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, PO therapy avoids the line complications um, that we can see. So this paper reviewed the literature to evaluate for superiority of prolonged IV versus oral step-down therapy. And sort of like the last review paper, their summary at the end said that our literature search found no published data demonstrating that IV-only antibiotic therapy is more effective than modern oral antibiotic step-down. In all the studies we evaluated, oral antibiotic step-down therapy was at least as effective as IV-only therapy. Um, so I don't just take them on their word. We're going to go through the data. But um, I think that conclusion is really interesting. And this table is sort of to get to some of their first points on why we could even, you know, why there's plausibility to considering PO step-down therapy is looking at the peak blood levels of PO antibiotics. And if you look at this table, the first couple lines are antibiotics tend to be older antibiotics that you look across to the peak blood level, they, they have much lower peak blood level to MIC ratios, suggesting that these antibiotics are probably not going to be able to get to the needed concentration to kill bacteria. As you go down to the bottom, longer chunk of antibiotics there, um, you can see that their, their peak blood level to MIC ratio is, is above one, and it does suggest that they may be able to kill. Obviously, there's more to blood levels and concentration and the ability of the effectiveness of antibiotics than just this. Um, you need to know which bacteria and there's a lot more to it, but this was sort of suggestive based on the pharmacokinetic data we had that um, 
these could could work. Um, and then regarding what the evidence is for PO antibiotics in infective endocarditis, starting with there was a lot of observational data. Um, this paper in particular found 12 case series. Each one had a pretty small N of below 50. Um, they used high-dose oral beta-lactams, oral cipro and rifampin, oral linazolid. Those are the some of the main ones you see uh, being used. And they had pretty high cure rates of endocarditis using these. Again, this is observational data. So you're always a little bit worried about um, were these patients selected because they were lower risk and maybe easier to treat. And then there were three controlled observational studies, some where they did, um, and then sorry, in these they did oral step-down therapy. And in all of these papers, they generally received at least seven days of IV therapy. Um, and they used various PO regimens. And in each of these studies, there was better mortality in the step-down group, actually, in the PO group, um, lower mortality rates than in the IV group. Um, and just this table gets a little bit wordy, but I wanted to just highlight which antibiotics have been used um, just and to get a sense of the dosing. Like, for example, amoxicillin has been used fairly commonly for a lot of these oral therapy studies, but it is a four times a day drug. So I think that's something to keep in mind. Um, a lot of fluoroquinolones, Bactrim has a lot of data. Um, but we all know high-dose Bactrim can also come with side effects. Linazolid, um, rifampin, clinda, and fusidic acid, those once more as adjunctive therapy. Um, and then moving along after the observational, we do have a few RCTs for oral step-down therapy and infective endocarditis. Um, and looking at these one by one, the top one from 1991 was a small study looking at they actually, for this study, every it was strep endocarditis. Everyone got two weeks of IV ceftriaxone, and then people either got two more weeks of IV or two weeks of amox. And they had 100% cure rates, which is pretty impressive. Um, and then for the second study, which was actually a really neat study, it was um, mostly, it was people who inject drugs who were coming in with bacteremia, and they randomized them all to either um, Cipro, with rifampin or whatever the standard IV therapy was for staph. So they're taking a ton of people with um, 500 people who inject drugs who have staph bacteremia, and then they found that 93 of those ended up having endocarditis. So that's the ones they looked at for this study. Um, and for this is a rare one where they actually switched, the Cipro to rifampin switch was actually, um, Cipro rifampin switch, as soon as they knew as soon as they randomized the people. So people got very little IV in this study. And the success rates were actually higher in the PO group, 95% than in the IV group. And then the next one, um, Iverson, sorry, that got a little shifted, but the Iverson study is um, the POET trial from New England Journal, also from 2019, sort of like Oviva. And we'll talk about that one a little more. Um, they used a variety of gram-positive organisms and did standard oral versus standard IV therapy. Um, and so we'll talk about that one. Um, and then finally, the last one they list is not really an RCT. It's sort of, they called it quasi-experimental. They basically did a pre-post study where before they did the standard and then after a certain date, they switched to this oral regimen option of Bactrim plus Clinda. 
Um, patients got a week of Bactrim Clina and then switched to PO to finish the course. And they found 80% success rate in the PO group and 70% in the IV. Um, so if you were to combine these all, you see that the rates PO is non-inferior and actually looks almost better in some of these. Um, and so since POET trial is sort of our biggest one, biggest N, I thought we could go through this in a little more detail. Um, it's going to be the one that we would be most likely to cite um, to change our practice, I would say. And the POET trial looked at left-sided endocarditis with gram-positive organisms. This was a carefully selected population. They Basically, if people were expected to have trouble adhering to an oral regimen, they were excluded for the trial. So I think we can all see where that would be a big barrier to a lot of the patients we see in the hospital. Um, and because of that, only 1% had IV drug use. And while MRSA was not an exclusion criteria, they didn't have any cases of MRSA. So again, I think we get the sense that this may be a little different from some of the patients we see. Um, and they randomized the 400 patients to oral step-down versus IV. Everyone received at least 10 days of IV therapy before being stepped down to PO or continued on IV. Um, and the median was actually 17 days of IV therapy, so a fair amount. And patients were switched to PO when clinically stable and when there were no indications for immediate surgery. Um, and I think another important thing to note about this study is that very close follow-up. These participants in the oral group as well were seen followed up two to three times a week. Um, which I think we all know is not, not reflective of real world practice, for better or worse. Um, and to give you a sense of the regimen used, a lot of amoxicillin, I'm not gonna go through the whole columns, I just wanted you to sort of see and recognize a lot of amoxicillin, a lot of linazolid, moxifloxacin. Um, they used, and then with adjunctive rifampin, fusidic acid, one group could get clinda. They used two agents, they said, to make sure that they achieved therapeutic concentrations of at least one of the agents, um, not because there's any evidence that there's like synergistic activity in particular. And so what they found was non-inferiority of the oral step-down group to the continued IV therapy. Um, and these were the four main events. The rates of events were pretty small, but all cores mortality, unplanned cardiac surgery, embolic event, and relapse of positive blood cultures. Um, and in the end, it was basically 9% of the oral group had one of the outcomes versus 12% of the IV. Um, and when you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves for the composite outcome, you can see that the curves are tracking long, sort of similarly, but there's definitely a gap there. Um, and so their conclusion was oral treatment is not inferior. And I just wanted to highlight this. They, they took the primary outcome and looked at if it changed based in their pre-specified subgroups, looking at different groups that could be at higher risk for failure of oral people with diabetes or renal disease or different bacterial infections, or did they have surgery? Did they have a prosthetic valve? Um, which about a quarter of the population did. And you can see that basically for all their different pre-specified subgroups and overall, if anything, it favored the oral versus um, IV therapy. Um, and then they also had, I just wanted to throw this out there because this is actually a different paper where they looked at long-term outcomes, um, cumulative incidence at a median follow-up of 3.5 years. You can see it gets out to six or seven years. And here they actually, show that um, oral treatment seemed to be better than 
IV treatment in terms of the long-term outcomes. Um, and so sort of that's our main trial for oral therapy in infective endocarditis. And, you know, I think what I take away from that trial is that PO step-down treatment is an option for certain patients. And again, for endocarditis, you're looking at it as step-down. Once you're sort of, you know, at least 10 days, maybe a couple of weeks into IV therapy and the patient's stable and they either had their surgery if they needed it or they're not going to and their culture's cleared a while ago, um, you could consider it. Um, and the review paper I cited earlier on endocarditis has this helpful sort of nice table just thinking through the main things. And I think a lot of it's obvious to us clinically, but it's still helpful to think the first question they ask is, is the patient clinically stable? And obviously, if they're unstable, you're probably going to continue IV. Um, the next one would be, have, have they cleared their bacteremia? And if not, then you're going to continue IV. But if they have, you know, you ask about, can they absorb oral medications from a gut? Obviously, an important concern here. Um, and the next one, I think, is really where a lot of our, our patients and our hesitations might fall, where are there psychosocial reasons to prefer IV therapy? Um, and I think this is really where, you know, IV therapy, you have to get connected to your PICC line or whatever for hours a day or some period of time. But you also get a nurse coming in at least once a week. You have pharmacy sending meds. Someone's going to check in on you and sort of realize if you aren't taking your meds, if you're having side effects. There's definitely always a contact point person available to you. You're going to be followed up in clinic. I think our systems of care right now don't always provide the same level of support for people on long-term oral. Um, and that obviously varies by institution and clinic, but I think, you know, a lot of our pay structures and all that are more tied to if you're getting IV therapy, you're, um, you are able to access certain support services that you may not with oral only. Um, and finally, um, is a published oral regimen available? So, of course, you need a success. So, uh, a susceptible oral regimen that you have reason to think would be successful. Um, and I can tell a brief story of one patient we had at TGH this spring who, um, a young lady who injects drugs and she came in with MSSA bacteremia and endocarditis. Hers was right-sided. She, after about two weeks in the hospital, announced she had to go home. She had stuff she had to deal with. So we had a long talk and ended up sending her out on oral rather than sending her out on nothing. But she came back a couple weeks later and said she had stopped taking it after like two days, just couldn't remember and then just didn't really like taking it. And so she was just sort of lost and floating. So and I think that's sort of one of those settings where, you know, that wasn't the best option for her, which we knew going in. But um, I think there's still a lot of questions to be asked. You know, how long of IV lead-in is needed? If you are going to switch, what are the best oral regimens? Um, or are we just always going to have this sort of um, assorted group of regimens that you can choose from? Do you really need two regimens for oral treatment, or can you get away with one? Obviously, fewer antibiotics, fewer side effects. And how frequently should we be monitoring patients on oral antibiotics? And um, what sort of monitoring clinic visits, you know, labs? And all of that is not well-defined. Um, so that's actually end. I'm happy to hear any concerns or discuss any questions um, that you guys have. 